Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 246, Finance Friday Edition, where we interview Kate and talk about cash flowing rentals, 401k contributions, and calculating your actual retirement date. I met a mentor who had a hundred single family residences. And from a small town girl, I lived in a very rare rural community that blew my mind. It absolutely, I mean, we went from thinking, hey, this is a nice supplemental income. Once we retire, when we're 65, you know, we'll have a nest egg to wait a second. This might actually change our entire life. Like we can do this. We can make the cash flow and we're smart enough. Like we work hard enough. We can make this happen. And that completely changed everything. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my cash flow loving co-host, Scott Trent. We're really running out of net new intros, aren't we, Mindy? <laughs> the fountain is full, right. Scott. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or re reallocate your capital and figure out if you can retire right now, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Scott, I am super excited to bring Kate in today because she has done it. She's way past wherever she needs to be in her retirement of plans, in her uh, single family rental portfolio, and she's really, really, really doing great. But she needs a second set of eyes, or I guess two second sets of eyes on her numbers to help her really solidify her plans. And I... Whew, I love her number. She's got a great salary. She's got 23 rental properties and she's really just crushing it. Yeah. And we get a chance to hear a little bit of background of that story. It would have been a great money story show as well to hear how she got to this position because she is so successful with it. But what I think was really fun about this episode is she's so in command of her finances um, with a couple of things, but with a couple of tweaks on a couple of key assumptions um, I think she can make a huge difference and realize her goals potentially much sooner than the four-year, five-year timeline we um, had discussed as her goal at the beginning of the episode. So uh, I think it was a really fun discussion, and it was cool to see a couple of light bulbs potentially going off. Um, I'm interested to see what happens next for her. Yeah, I really like these shows, the Finance Friday episodes that we do and release every Friday, because it this episode is just embodies what we're trying to do. She has it in her mind that this is her plan. And that's great. It's a great plan. But when you come in and you look at it from a slightly different angle, one of not in the exact middle of it, you can see different ways to look at things. And that's something that I think you excel at, Scott, is just, hey, what about if you thought of it this way? And you could see that light bulb go off in her head. She's like, oh, I think she had several moments like that. And I'm like... Her plan, her original plan that she came in with today was fantastic and absolutely viable. But this other plans, the the new ideas that we gave her to think about are just, I think, going to help her realize her goals even quicker. Absolutely. Well, should we bring her, should we bring her in? 
We need to hear from our attorney, Scott. The contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice, and neither Scott nor I, nor Bigger Pockets, is engaged in the provision of legal tax or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and accountants, regarding the legal, tax, and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. I think that actually comes is really highlighted today. I think that she could benefit from a session with a tax planner or a CPA to look at the different options that she has. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Kate makes a great salary. She owns 23 single family properties in her Midwestern hometown and moved to the East Coast to increase her income, a prospect that paid off for her very well. Her goal is to retire in the next four to five years, completely living off her rental income back in her hometown. She's looking for a review of where she's at and some of her potentially controversial investment choices. Kate, welcome to the show. I cannot wait to jump into this episode. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's start off with your income. What are you making and where do you put it? Sure. So my current salary is right at 180K and I am also in a bonus pool for 15% bonus each year. Okay. That's um, not bad at all. <laughs> I like that very much. Any, any other sources of income for, for you guys? So uh, my husband and I do have these rental properties and my husband worked for quite a few years, but now he manages our investment properties. So from W2 income, it's, it's my income plus our rental income. Okay. And then what's the rental income? So rental income, 
averages, I think, around 11000 a month. And but that is that's minus management fees and management expenses that go through the management company. So it's a little bit it's probably more like 14000 a month, something in that in that range. How about net cash flow? Just and we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll dive into the portfolio at some point. Of course. So net cash flow from rental properties, like I said, that rental income minus the management fees and management expenses that go through the management company, uh, that nets 11000 a month. And then beyond that, we have other expenses, for instance, taxes and insurance uh, and mortgage payments. And those equate to about mm, 7000 a month. And so uh, current net, net cash flow from the rentals is around 3600 a month. 3600 Okay. Um, awesome. And how much do you spend per month uh, after all that income? Yeah, sure. So we have um, a few expenses. So right now we we rent instead when we do not own, and so our rent is uh, eighteen hundred a month. And so with rent and utilities, that averages about twenty one hundred a month. We spend around four hundred and sixty dollars a month in groceries, and we have a family of five. So it's myself, my husband, and three kids. Uh, we usually eat out on about a hundred dollars a month. And then on average for two used vehicles for gas and insurance, et cetera, that averages around 380 a month. Uh, we do have charitable donations that, that we do contribute to, and that's about 100 a month. Uh, and then we have kind of an other category of vacation or kids stuff and doctors, and that's about 300 a month. So monthly expenses total would be around uh, 4,000 a month. Awesome. And how, how long have you been tracking um, this and how comfortable do you feel about that number? So I have been tracking this hardcore for the last three years and I have a spreadsheet and literally going every month and I have a Mint account. And so we keep track of it there and then I log it in Mint and then on my spreadsheet each month. So I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah, pretty comfortable. Um, let's go through your, um, your, your net worth. What are your investments and liabilities against those? Okay, sure. So we do not, like I said, we do not currently own our primary residence. Uh, we do have 23 single family rentals. And so uh, those are worth approximately 1.8 million today. Uh, we have two used vehicles. That's like 22K. We have long-term care policies and life insurance policies with surrender of around 150K, which I'm sure that seems so high and I'm happy to chat about those too. Uh, I also max out my health savings account each year. And so we have approximately 30,000 in there right now. Uh, we have a cash position of 75K. And then we have 90K in a Roth, 400K and 401K, 90K in a rollover IRA. We have 529 plans for our kids with 26K and then a very small balance on a credit card we pay off for liabilities each month and rental debt currently at 550K. So that's about net worth of 2.1. Awesome. Um, so you're crushing it here with it, with this. And you have, you have essentially no consumer debt, um, very clean financial uh, profile here, very diligently yeah. tracked expenses, um, significant net worth, heavy real estate allocation. Love it. That's bigger pocket style. Um, and, and, uh, things seem to be going pretty well, I think. Yeah, it is. And it's been a lot of learning through the years to get to this point, but we've done a lot of research. Uh, we spend a lot of time, my husband and I talking about it and planning for our futures and it's feeling like we're in pretty good shape right now. 
Can I um can I pivot from the way we usually do Finance Fridays here for just a second? And could we do a five minute or seven minute overview of your money journey to how you became um how you got to this position and got to this this net worth? Yeah, happy to. So my husband and I met around, I don't know, 2008. And at that time, he was just finishing grad school. And we, uh, I did not have very much school debt. I had maybe 10,000 when I got out of school. And so I paid that off fairly quickly. And then when my husband and I got married, we had around, I want to say 90,000 total in, in school debt. And so we lived very small and put everything we could towards paying off that debt. And we paid that off in two or three years uh, between my income at the time, which I, I made 50000 coming out of, uh, out of school, and my husband was somewhere around 60000 So between the two of us, we just lived very small and paid it all off. And then after that, uh, we bought our first rental property in 2014. And our goal at the time was to buy 10 properties total, one property for the, each year for the next 10 years. Where was and, this property located and where were you living at that time? Yep. So we were, uh, at, when we first found the property, we were living in the Midwest and the property is in the Midwest. Okay, great. Yeah. And so, you know, we had this goal of buying, like I said, 10 total, one per year for 10 years. And uh, among that, you know, part of it with buying rentals is you have to have the cash. And so for me to maximize my salary, we made the, dis- the conscious decision to move our family. And so when we did that, my salary went up from... You know, I had been making a, a, a 5% or so increase each year, but I made a 30% raise when I made that decision uh, to move from the Midwest to, to a different state. And so when we did that, we bought our first two properties over a period of two years. And I met a mentor who had 100 single family residences. And from a small town girl, I lived in a very rare rural community that blew my mind. It absolutely, I mean, we went from thinking, hey, this is a nice supplemental income. Once we retire, when we're 65, you know, we'll have a nest egg to wait a second. This might actually change our entire life. Like we can do this. We can make the cash flow and we're smart enough. Like we work hard enough. We can make this happen. And that completely changed everything. So we went from, you know, we bought our first couple in 2014 and then, you know, we bought one in 2015. And then after that, it was like three or four per year, just hacking at it when a good deal would come on the market. You know, we were ready. Uh, We had financing ready. I shopped financing really, really hard. But before you knew it, we just had, we'd acquired, you know, these properties. So it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun, but it was definitely not the plan from the beginning. And how long ago did your husband um, leave work to, to manage the portfolio? So that's a great question. He, that was in 2016. So we were married in 2011. So about five years of us both working uh, when we could, working on the rentals, when we would be back in the Midwest, et cetera. And then in 2016, uh, I, you know, we were starting to have children and we made the conscious decision that he could manage those rentals and we could live on my W-2 income per se and start working harder on the rental side of our business. I want to take a moment here to just highlight the fact that you have an enormous income and you choose specifically to live in a high cost of living area. You choose specifically to rent instead of own in that high cost of living area. And you choose to still invest in real estate. I get a lot of people in the Bigger Pockets forums 
and in our Facebook groups that are asking, you know, ooh, is it okay that I rent and I want to start buying properties? Yes, it's okay if you rent. It doesn't always make sense to own a home in every single city. Like you live on the East Coast, which is notoriously expensive. If you lived in San Francisco, owning your own home would probably not be the most financially advantageous decision for you when you could rent for significantly less per month. I'm assuming that you have, you have what, $2,100 for rent and utilities. You're not going to get a mortgage on a house out on the East Coast for $2,100 a month. That's just not going to happen. So if your goal is to not stay there forever, this is this is a great choice for you. So if you're listening and you live in a high cost of living area and you do want to invest in rentals, especially not in that high cost of living area, it's totally fine. Kate says it's fine. Kate yes. gives her approval. I sure do. And it's been exceptional for us. I also really like that you moved to a high cost of living area that had a higher salary specifically to make more money. I have moved my whole life. I've never lived in a house for more than six years ever. And it would be kind of a no-brainer to go and generate a ton of income if I had the opportunity simply by moving. And it can be scary to move. You lived, it sounds like you lived in the same hometown your whole life, and then you moved. You're making a ton of money. When you finish your financial journey, you can move back. They have planes to everywhere in America, so you can go visit whenever you want. It doesn't It doesn't have to be this, you know, oh, well, I don't live in my hometown anymore. I guess I can't talk to anybody. Like, we have phones now. We have the internet. We have video calls. It's amazing. Technology. Who'd have thought? I, I also just want to um, continue the several minutes of compliments that we're, we're now in uh, here on your financial <laughs> journey. Um, <laughs> clearly, like a uh, great money story. Nothing nothing unrepeatable about your money story that, that's happening there. Lots of folks can kind of replicate a lot of uh, elements of what, what we just heard there. And we hear on Finance Fridays here a ton of people at various stages along that journey. I, you know, I like to think that where you're at may be an inevitable outcome for a lot of folks who are willing to take a lot of the steps that you've taken there. You have complete command over your spending. Three years, hardcore tracking of those numbers. I'm sure that uh, the tracking or the control of those expenses lasted long before that as well to some degree um, with this. You've got uh, a great great incomes uh, or you have a great income and it sounds like a conscious decision was made uh, for your husband to begin building assets uh, while you live off of essentially one income uh, in that move. A lot of, uh, of, of decisions here that are going to give you a tremendous amount of optionality in your life. So I guess the million dollar question is, or I guess $2 million question in this case is, how can we possibly help you from here? <laughs> um, but all of yeah, this is so, going so well. Well, I sure appreciate all that feedback. It's, it's been a lot of hard work, but to your point, it's something anybody can replicate. You know, I think you do need some sound principles to start with where you understand what your strategy is. Like, like we almost bought one in cash in the beginning, and that would have been a really poor decision for us because we wouldn't have had cash flow to then put a 20% down payment and buy our second, third home. So you do have to have some basics, I think, to start and and put something together on paper to say, how can we create the cash flow to get started? Because then it becomes this engine that churns. And the longer it goes, you start snowballing and paying them off, which is what's happening now. And you know, you see that upside five to ten later, five to ten years later. So to your point, Scott, on, you know, what help do I need or or what advice would would I request? 
Uh, I have a couple crazy ideas and I, I think you guys are the perfect sounding board to, to either confirm I'm crazy or potentially uh, give me some advice. And so the first question I really have is I'm thinking about cashing out my 401k. Nope. That's crazy. <laughs> it depends. It depends. Uh, okay. What a great okay, answer. Okay. So, <laughs> so you, first I want to caveat this with you have 23 rentals that are more than paying for their expenses and kicking off a significant amount of cash every month. With that caveat, I will say, I will listen to why you want to cash in your 401k. Yeah. So it's crazy. So, you know, back to the numbers, I think I have right around 400k invested in index funds in my 401k. And we also have Roth worth 90k. So the Roth, we could cash out the pro- the the proceeds, I think, without paying any tax. So we've contemplated, I want to say there's like 40 or 50k there that we could take out technically and with no no tax consequence. And so we've contemplated that. But the big bogey is really this 400k sitting in my 401k that right now it feels that I can't access it until I'm 65 or older. And that seems like a lifetime away. You know, if I plan to retire when I turn 40 years old, uh, I, I've done some research. I'm definitely not an expert here, but I understand when you cash it out, you do have to pay a penalty potentially, and then you have tax consequences. But I, I've really just a good portion of those proceeds were company matched dollars. So I don't know if this is the right way to think about it, but in my head, it's kind of free money that I'd be potentially losing from taxes for that portion. And then for the remainder, I just think about if we could either apply, let's say, two thirds of that to additional renter, rental properties, the cash flow from that, you know, could really significantly affect our lives for the next 30 years versus waiting till we're 65 to see any of it. So let, before you get into the, the answer to this, what are, what are the specifics of your goals uh, in, a, in a broader sense, outside of this 401k decision, where, what, what, where, where do you want to get to going forward? So that's completely fair. I am not trying to, and my family, we are not trying to maximize lifetime earnings. That is not our intent. So what we're really trying to do is at 40, give time back to my family and my kids while they're at home and, you know, while, while we have that ability to spend more time together. So my our main goal is at 40 to have no more W-2 income for the rest of my life, unless I choose to. I don't think I'm going to choose to, but I don't know. Maybe something will change in the future. So no more that's W-2. that's four years away? That is four years away, yes. Okay, awesome. And so the, the, question, the, the bigger question is, how do we get to make sure that we're in that position in four years? And then I think that that's where you focus on the 401k. And the 401k is the, the 20 of the 80-20 in answering that question at this point in time. Is that right? Sorry, I'm not checking your 80-20. Uh, 80-20 is I'm um, 80-20 rule. What's 80? What's the the what, what's the 80 percent of my situation that matters, or the 20 percent of the activities I can do that will have 80 percent of the in- outcome? It yeah. looks to me like 80 percent of your net worth, or roughly 60, 70, 60, 70, 80 percent is is in this real estate portfolio, and 20, 30, 40 is in this this uh, 401k or, 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 or taxable accounts. Is that right? That's exact. That's exactly correct. Yes. And so we've also thrown about, thrown around keeping it in the index funds, but then once I retire, do like a, uh, what's it called? Self-directed. Do a self-directed and maybe take that 400K and go apply it to a whole bunch more rental property, keep 100K in cash reserves, right? And grow your portfolio that way. But the problem there, when we think about it, that would be if I want to maximize lifetime earnings. I can't, we cannot touch any of that 
cash flow until we're 65. And so well, that's why, where it just doesn't. If you can achieve the goal of, re- of retiring at 40, why wouldn't you want to then maximize lifetime earnings in a mostly semi-passive state? Is, that, is there uh, an aversion to that or is it, it can't come at the cost of being able to retire at 40? It cannot come at the cost of retiring at 40. And I think where I struggle is based on our rental debt of 550K, we're also going to purchase a primary house when I retire with the intent of living there for 30 years. So assuming we move back to the Midwest, that's going to cost approximately 300K. So we will not be debt-free, completely debt-free when I turn 40. And I struggle with Am I okay with that? If as long as the cash flow pays for everything, or would I prefer to just be debt free and not not worry about it? So here, here's my suggestion for framing the discussion. I think we should start with the real estate portfolio and back into various ways to get that to where you want it to be, and then discuss the 401k. And, and I'll, I'll give one mental model for that uh, going in, and why, why I think that's the case. If you, you know, and, and I'm going to use maximizing lifetimes earnings, which I know you don't want to, uh, which is not your goal, but I want to, I want to start there anyways, because if you have a paid off rental portfolio in the Midwest, I think you're going to average seven to 8% returns annualized on that property portfolio. And I think you're going to get eight to 10% in the stock market over a 30 year, over a 30 year period in index funds. At least those are the, those are the assumptions I apply to my own life in making these decisions. The return profile increases from real estate when you're using leverage. That's not your goal um, with that. You're, you're doing that. But I think if you can get your rental portfolio to a place where you're going to be able to retire comfortably on it without the 401k at all, leaving that money in the 401k or that type of, you, you may find that that actually compounds really nicely. And a lifetime away um, today is going to be reality in that one lifetime uh, for you when, when retirement age hits. And so that, that's just one, one, that's just where I'm framing the reluctance on there. Now, if the math works out differently and we got to get to the, hit the back into the goal of four years from now, because that is the stated goal, then we can figure out how to, how to apply it. Uh, we can figure out how to get creative from there. But the easiest option is to solve it without that and then go back to that if we need it. Does that, does that make sense? How I'm, how I'm framing the, the thought process on that? Yes, I think it absolutely does. And I think something that we need to consider is this doesn't have to be a one-time decision either. So let's say the cash flow makes sense when I retire, everything's fine for a year or two, but a couple years there's a hiccup and we need something. You can also incrementally take some of those 401k proceeds out at that time if we needed to in a worst case scenario, similar to the Roth that's sitting there, you know. Exactly. And and there's a Roth conversion ladder uh, component as well that you can also get into if you want to do that. Because with a real estate business, when you do a big acquisition one year or 1031 or whatever it is, there's a chance you're going to have heavy losses in a that's going to enable you to to do that conversion ladder or pull it out with that. So I think that's, that's exact. That's another really good, good, good point with, um, with with thinking about it with that. But let's, let's go into your, your portfolio right now. If you uh, and let me ask you this question. Um, let's use a present day scenario, and then let's project into the future. You have a $1.8 million asset value on that portfolio with 550 k in debt. Is that right? That's correct. If you sold a portion of that portfolio today and paid off, used the proceeds of that to pay off the remaining debt, how much cash flow would you generate? I don't know. How would you do that math? Is it simply the... I feel like the generation would go the the other way, wouldn't it? Because you'd sell properties, so your cash flow would go down. 
but you pay off your remaining 550k in rental debt. So your immediate cash flow would jump um, on a net basis because you'd pay off. You'd no longer have any principal and interest payments. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I don't know. I don't know. I think that would be a good exercise to go through because the reason you're not your portfolio is not paid off is because you're choosing to allocate the capital towards building towards growth mode. In four years, um, you will have that decision about whether you want to deleverage the portfolio or not as well. And at that time, you can you, you don't have to necessarily pay off the whole portfolio or not um, via your your job income or the, the 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 cash flow that you're stacking from the portfolio. You can choose at that point to sell or reallocate the the capital um, if you'd like to become debt free on your portfolio at that time. And it will boost your cash flow because you won't have any debt. It'll hurt your returns um, to a certain degree long-term, but that's not your, your stated goal. So I just want to point that out as another framework for that. Um, yeah, that's kind a great of, again, point. To kind of trigger the discussion with that. And, and then, so with that, what is your portfolio going to look like in four years on your current track? What is your math telling you? So rough math is right now we apply about 10,000 of additional cash flow to paying down that 550K of debt. So that would be approximately 120,000 a year, three more years, it'd be 360,000. So we're looking at maybe a rental debt balance of around 200K. Uh, one thing that's really cool about our investment strategy is we refinanced uh, a good portion, maybe, I can't think exactly of the number, but a pretty good amount of that loan within one to one mortgage company. And we have an agreement with them that if we pay down a large lump sum, that they will reallocate the mortgage payments to make them smaller over time versus just paying the same, you know, to rental debt. So like if we pay 70,000 or 100,000 against that loan, the mortgage payment the following month goes down by, let's say, 600 a month. Something That's awesome. Like that. So they reset the amortization table um, every That's time you make a, a large one-time payment or a, a, a periodically. Yes. So, awesome. you know, like we're talking about, if we pay down 320000 in debt, let's say, those mortgage payments, you know, which now we pay around 4600 a month, that may only be, I don't know, 2000 a month or 1500 a month by the time I'm at retirement age. So cash flow is going to change dramatically that way as well, Scott. Okay, awesome. So what is your current... Um... What is the current cost of that of those of the the principal and interest portion of that debt on a monthly basis or or annually? I'd have to go run the numbers. I know our current mortgage payments are around forty six hundred a month, but that includes taxes and insurance for for some of those properties. So it's something less than forty six hundred, maybe thirty five hundred a month, something like that. Thirty five hundred dollars a month on twenty three loans. So we do not currently have twenty three loans. So. We have uh, three loans, I think, with particular loan companies, and then one loan for some of the debt. The remainder of them, Mindy, we paid off over time. So when we first started, we did Freddie, Freddie Mac loans uh, up to six or seven for each my husband and myself. And so when we started paying down debt, we picked the highest interest rate or the lowest balance. We kind of flip-flopped on strategy, to be honest, and started paying those down dramatically. So we do not have 23 mortgages today. Uh, we just have, a, a, like I said, maybe three or four with mortgage companies and then one where we've consolidated the remainder of the debt. Many of them are paid off debt-free. Okay. 
I just want to point that, you know, so we don't know the specifics, but you, you have a mortgage, a principal and interest uh, portion of your mortgage that's between 3000 and 3500 a month right now. And if you pay that off, your cash flow net net jumps from that $3,600 number to 66 to 7000 uh, a that's month. That's exactly right. And that's what you, that's probably what you're backing into is game over um, with yes. that because you only need 4000 a month to, to live um, with that. Um, and that's, that's assuming you have a mortgage payment that is about that 2100 level, um, with that, which could be, that could be, you know, that may not even be the case. You may be able to buy a house, uh, for cash, depending on how, how things play out with this. Um, so what I, what, again, what I wanted to point out again with my thought exercise earlier is that game, game the game is over when you get to 4,000 and you're at 3,600 right now, um, essentially right now you want a buffer. That's not enough margin to safety to be right at, at that level. I'm sure. But we need we need a buffer. Plus, we have to pay for health insurance out of pocket. And so uh, I literally went on healthcare.gov and figured out for a family of five what our premiums are going to be between now and then my husband being 65 and myself being 65. And it averages pretty closely between the premium plus the deductible around 30,000 a year. So that averages an additional twenty five hundred a month. Um, to, to think about as well, assuming assuming you have to pay that full premium. And what's weird is when you go on healthcare.gov, it talks about additional qualified premiums you may be uh, able to achieve that would reduce that total premium and deductible. But to be honest, I don't know enough about it. So I just put in worst case for everything. And that means I need to get to about 5,200 a month cash flow to be able to cover everything. All right, 5,200 a month in cash flow. I, I, think, I think that if you do the math, and you sold a portion of your portfolio today, um, and redid and, and and paid off that 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 balance. You'd be very close. You may not be quite where you want to be to, but you'd be very very close. And so again, that framework I think will be really helpful as you think as you back into your four year four year plan with that. You don't have to sell off any of the portfolios. You'll be close enough anyways because you're, especially since you get to reset the amortization table um, with this with this creative loan structure. That's awesome. Um, but yeah. Um, Okay, so with that context, I want to I want to jump in there, Scott. Sorry, I want to jump in and say we can make up the rest of that by taking your four hundred one k, leaving it where it is right now, and then once you no longer have income, you can do a Roth conversion ladder, which will allow you to convert up to and don't quote me on this. I'm going to give you a research opportunity. I believe it's forty thousand dollars that you're not paying any capital gains taxes on. Uh, wait a second. I think I'm mixing up my, my things. So you can, so you take $40,000 out of your 401k, you pay the taxes on it and you're converting it to a Roth IRA. So now all of the taxes are paid and there's no penalty because you're not taking possession of the money yourself. That goes into a, uh, plan that you can then withdraw in five years. And you do that again the next year with another 40000 And I'm stuck on 40000 and I can't remember why. Um, you well, can do you, it with however much you want. You're just going to move up the income tax brackets as you earn, as you realize more income um, with that. And I think, I think careful tax planning could be, a, and the Roth conversion ladder could be a really viable option for this strategy because 
you know, you're, you're certainly going to produce taxable income on this prop rental property portfolio. Um, at least if things are going reasonably well, um, with that. So I, I don't think you're going to get around. I don't think I, I would imagine, you know, you're probably going to have some realized income, especially with a paid off portfolio of this size, but it may be very low. And there may be years again, when you have major rehabs that can be fully depreciated in year, those kinds of things that, um, you'll be able to have very low income and, and do that strategy. And that would be a very good way to bridge the gap. I think, I think Mindy's spot on with, with, with that thought process. Um, any remaining stuff. gaps at the end of that. So, uh, yeah. And that is, there's an article from the Mad Scientist called How to Access Retirement Funds Early. If you Google Mad Scientist Access Retirement Funds, it pops right up. He's really good with the SEO. There's three different methods that he uh, highlights here. He, he makes sure that you know that there is a 10% early withdrawal penalty. He talks about the Roth conversion ladder in much more detail than I just went into. The 72T method is substantially equal periodic payments. You basically just determine for, uh, oh, when you leave your job, immediately roll your 401k into a traditional IRA, determine how much you think you'll want to withdraw from your retirement accounts every year until you turn 59 and a half, which is when you can start to access them early. It doesn't have to be 65. So now we've only got 19 and a half years to cover instead of uh, 25 years. Slightly less than one lifetime. Yeah. So he's got a lot of information there about that. And his third option is just pay the penalty. I don't like that option. So I'm going to disagree with him on that and figure out ways to do this. So once you do the the Roth conversion letter, you take the money, you convert it into your Roth IRA, you pay the taxes now, which will be significantly less because now you don't have your high income job. And then you wait five years, you can withdraw the amount that you put in there. So let's call it 40,000 because I'm stuck on that number. You can withdraw all 40,000 and pay no penalties and no taxes because you already paid the taxes. Now, when you withdraw that money, you can only withdraw the 40, but maybe that 40 has grown to 45 or 500, uh, whatever it has. That still continues to grow in that account. You can't, I'm not sure when you can access that part. But it doesn't matter because you already have that 40000 that you already did. And you can do this every single year for, and then for five years, you've got another buffer of income. So, and I, I say five years, you can do this forever. Um, I like that yeah. option a lot. Um, your 401k comes with a 50% match. I can't remember if we said that on the show, up to 10%. So you can, you're making 50% return on every dollar you put in there. I'm a big fan of the 401k. I don't know if you have a Roth 401k option. Um, can you make the same contribution? You're shaking your head. So I guess there is no Roth 401k option. I would still, I mean, you've, now we're in that case where does really reducing your income, your taxable income by $20,000 do anything for you? On the taxable income front? No, I'm talking about the match and I would continue to, contribute to get the maximum match until you found another way to make that kind of money. Because you're only going to be there for four more years. What is that? 10% of your income is- 18,000 a year. 18,000. So you're already almost maxed out anyway. That's another $9,000 a year. So, I mean, in the the whole course of $180,000 a year, what's another $9,000? But hey, if you don't want it, I'll take it. Yeah. 9,000 is still 9,000 and that's just another 
bunch of money you can contribute to your 401k. Uh, I really like that until you can figure out a different, like if you've got a, a rental property that you really want to hardcore pay down, maybe that would work. But you've got a big buffer in your between your monthly income and your expenses right now. So you could already pay that down. I don't I think know. What you, what like you both have really, yeah, I think what you both have really been able to to help me see a lot better is that it's okay to have options. We don't have to act on those options now, right? So we have good planning in place between the HSA. So I'm we max that out every year and I keep a spreadsheet, keeping track of those expenses. You know, there's cash accessible there if we need to get to it. Uh, there's cash within the, the principal towards the Roth that if we need to get to it, to Mindy's point, you know, do a conversion into the Roth. So you have more cash accessible. If you can't tell, like the thing on the top of my mind is, do we have enough cash? Like is cash flow going to be okay? Cause we don't have W2 income. And I think maybe it's enough to have a plan and continue to put yourself in a good situation where you have accessibility to cash, but keep it in vehicles where it can maximize, you know, it's, it's, in, it's earnings potential. And in some ways, at least it is uh, differentiating away from real estate a little bit because it's in index funds versus being a hundred percent in, in real estate. I think that's probably a benefit as well to think through. I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah. These are all, <laughs> I, I think I, I completely agree with everything you're saying there. I think that, uh, um, if you need cash, the most, the obvious place to go for that cash is a line of credit against your rental property portfolio, right? So that, that's where if you, if you need the cash, early in the next four years, that's where you want to get to. I hear you that your goal is be game over by 40 uh, uh, with that, with those types of things. I think you'll be close enough just by following your current strategy and continuing what you're doing here. I think you've got a huge margin of safety probably built into that. That's hidden in numbers we can't see. I bet you're not projecting your salary increasing a ton or, uh, you know, the, the rents increasing in your portfolio or like stock returns being a certain way or whatever with that. So I, I think there's probably a lot of a re very reasonable margin of safety built in. You can always pull that money out and pay that penalty later. But I like, I, I, I in, in your case, I think that you're actually going to get a higher return potentially in the stock market. Um, you know, historically, um, over a long-term average, anything could happen in the next four years. You know, everyone has their opinion about that, but you know, over a long-term average, I'd be, I'd be betting that the averages in that 401k will actually surpass the, the portfolio return in the real estate. Um, all things considered with that, we could see, you know, with a deleveraged portfolio. Um, and then I would, I just want to, um, chime in on the real estate concept inside the 401k. Um, I don't like real estate investing inside of the 401k as a rule. If you're going to invest in notes or debt or those types of things, that can be a good vehicle for it because you're going to generate a lot of taxable income um, from the interest and that kind of stuff. But real estate is inherently tax advantaged. And you're, 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 you know, one, a paid off rental property portfolio is not likely to produce a very strong um, return relative to some other asset classes like stocks or other types of businesses with that. It's a leverage component that we can more reasonably use leverage that drives a lot of that. Um, and I don't think, I think, I think that you're going to miss out on a lot of the tax benefits and, 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 and it's going to be a lot more complicated to manage that with a self-directed plan. You can do it. I just, as a rule, like the, like that with the after-tax stuff and then the, the pre-tax or tax deferred, um, uh, 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 investments. Those I like for the, personally, I put those into, um, 
index funds and those types of things. Um, or, or if interest rates were to rise, I would be put a lot of fixed, I would get a lot of that type of stuff in those, um, in, my, in my retirement accounts as well. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, 
the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions. I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. I have a question about your job. So do you have the kind of job where you could go back and do some sort of consulting if things got really tight? Or do you have the kind of job where you need to be there constantly to keep up on the day-to-day in order to be effective to go back? I think had you asked me this question two years ago, the answer would have adamantly been, no, I need to be in the office. But I do think that industries are changing. And though my current job does require me to be in the office, I think there would be the ability to do consulting if I needed to in the future and and do some of that remotely. So you have a job that pays you, um, your your base salary of 180 pays you 45 months of expenses every year. So if there's some sort of you know, let's say you're a CPA and in April, you it's really, really busy. Is there any sort of cyclical thing in your job where you could come in for a month or two and, you know, uh, and these are more like just planting seeds because maybe there's a project you can help consult on that your experience and expertise is uniquely qualified to, you know, generate $180,000 over three months. That's the kind of trade-off that I think would be worth looking into, especially if you could do it from your Midwestern hometown instead of being in the place where you're at now, you know, after four years and and you've completely retired. And they're like, hey, Kate, come back. We want you to, you know, consult on this one project for three months. Oh, you know what? This could be interesting. Or, hey, I'm done. I'm I'm out completely. So, you know, I think keeping, keeping your options open is always really the best course of action. Yeah, I, I think that's a great thing to keep in mind. I, I just, I like what Bill Armini is going with this as well with the thought process is, you know, if we use the 4% rule, right? And, and we're not, we, we, this, it's not going to apply specifically to a real estate portfolio with this. But if we use that, you, you'd be, you'd, you'd say, I need to spend $60,000 a year. Um, so that's a $1.5 million net worth um, at 5,200 with, with that. So, you know, 1.5 to $1.6 million net worth. You're, you've soared past that from a net worth perspective. Um, and so you, you, and again, I bet that you're conservatively valuing your portfolio to a certain degree. Is that, is that fair? I think the value of 1.8 is probably accurate, but I think the cash flow and the expenses are for sure ultra, ultra conservative compared to what it would be like if we could manage them ourselves. Oh, so if you, if you, if you were to move there and manage yourself, that would completely change the profile. I, I'm sure you, you'd, you'd increase your, your rents by at least 10%. 
um, which would flow right down to the bottom line. Of course, you have to work to manage that, but I assume you got to do something uh, while you're w- w- once you retire from from this uh, and, and move out there. So that would be that that would make sense. Um, is that right? Is that how you're thinking about it? Yeah, somewhat. So right now we do have a management company, and because we have a larger portfolio, we negotiated several management companies against themselves. We were able to get a seven percent versus the ten percent rate. Uh, but it, there's also a one time a year, like a, a re-signing kind of with the management company that there's an additional fee there that's pretty hefty. So I think what we would do is renegotiate again. I don't know if we can do better than 7%. Like I'm pretty happy with that. And I like the ability to have a management company doing the any sort of rental tenant uh, communication. It's worth it to me for 7% to not have to manage that piece. But we do pay right now. If, if something breaks, we have to pay someone significantly to go fix it. And my husband and I love that aspect of the job. Like we, I dream about summers putting up gutters on all of our properties. Like this is my dream to, to take our kids to school and go build decks and gutters. That is like my dream job. And so I feel like, you know, we pay a significant amount of expenses right now that my husband and I will be able to, to be able to reduce. And Mindy, to your point, it's kind of like having a part-time job if we choose to, you know, only we can invest it back in our, in our own company potentially versus going back to some sort of W2 type employment. So I love it. Every, everyone has a different dream. Uh, I, I certainly <laughs> do. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't want to build decks uh, with that, but uh, <laughs> no, that that's awesome. And so here, here's, what I want to point out is where I think Mindy was heading with some of those questions or where I, I'm, 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 I think that's going is you're way past the finish line um, for all this kind of stuff. You make a couple of tweaks to the way you capitalize your portfolio. You don't have to wait till till 2024 to go do this. And if you're going to go and build decks on your rental properties in the summers, you're probably going to stack another hundred fifty to $100,000 in net worth every year on top of that. Um, in addition to the cash flow, so that would be the framing. You know, I would reframe, the, reorient the conversation away from like I don't think I first. I don't think you need to move the the 401k out of there. I think if, if, you know, it might be too aggressive, it's everyone needs the the margin of safety that they're comfortable with. And yours might be another few years down the road, but I think a lot of people um, would feel really comfortable. And I would say they're very reasonable to turn it right now and, and, and go and do that kind of stuff, especially if you're going to manage the property yourself and, and, you know, add value on, on a part-time basis to these properties with, with con- construction work, which is incredibly high value work in 2021 in particular with it. So what's your reaction to that thought process? My mind is blown actually. So I think because we're so risk averse and because other than the one mentor I mentioned who has a hundred doors, I don't have like a lot of folks to run this by to say, am I like, are we crazy? Like this math, you know, it's snowballing. It's making sense as we're paying down this debt. Uh, so I'm just really thankful to be here today to, to talk it through and, and to think about the various options for us. Yeah, you got to be sure that you're going to you're going to be happy on that four thousand dollars a month in spending. That's that's a lot or, or fifty two hundred yeah. um, when you include that. Um, but if you are, then then I think that I mean, that's that's the key assumption in this. I think that is needs to be tested with that. And then you, you know, what, what's the management stuff going to turn out? How's, how's the, how are those rehab or maintenance costs going to come down um, with that? You know um, that those are, those are all things to consider, but I think, and then, you know, do, does that tweak slightly if I pay down the property with that? If you're, your, if your goal is to get there as fast as possible, I think you can, you could do it a lot sooner than four years 
um, depending on what, what your comfort level is. That'd be amazing. Yeah, that's that's uh, my thought too. After we started talking, I'm like, why are we waiting four years? Uh, so, so here's something to think about. My husband was very risk averse. Uh, he didn't want to leave his job. He was making a very good salary and he's, he had grown up financially insecure um, several years of his life. And he's like, why would I walk away from such a great job? That's so silly. And it, it was, it, it helped him sleep at night that I had a job It ha- that covered all of our expenses, but it helped him get the confidence to go into his boss's office and say, I want to work three days a week. And his boss was like, fine. Like he was it's like building it up and building it up. And his boss is like, yeah, that's great. I don't care. Like we want you to do this much. So instead of working full-time for the next four years, what would it look like if you went to four days a week and you had Fridays off or you went down to three days a week and you had Mondays and Fridays off? Would that... And- and can you go back to full-time work at a similar salary, maybe a 10%? Would, would the worst case be you get like a 10% or a 15% cut in pay if you took a year and then tried to come back to the same field? I don't know. But what would that worst case be from a a job planning perspective with that? I think given my current situation, the 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 most probable thing that could happen is I need to rethink about the math and maybe I'm two years out and not four from thinking about flipping the switch and maybe you know, maybe there's opportunity to do it before I turn 40, which is just, it's hard to even say it out loud, to be honest, but but maybe there's opportunity there and we need to think about it. So I'm coming from this at a fairly unique perspective in that I am slightly over 40 and I watched my husband go through this same thought process that you're going through. Oh, it's it's a few more years. It's a few more years. It's a few more years. And I'm sitting here having spoken to, you know, 50 people about this Um you know, about their finances. And I'm thinking, yeah, you could pull the trigger. I mean, I, I, if I was in your position with the 23 rentals that were kicking off, let's look at this. If you paid off all of your mortgages, that's giving you $14,000 a month. And yes, there's expenses and, you know, whatever, but you only need five. So that's, I'm not saying quit your job today. I'm saying this is, you know, I'm, if you've listened to the show, you've heard me say this a lot, personal finance is personal and you have to be able to sleep at night once you go in and give your notice. And that is, I mean, we, we hit our fine number and he still worked for three more years and it was just this, or maybe two more years. I don't remember. Uh, no, I think it was three years. And it was just this like, oh, I'm I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And he stepped down to part-time and he was like, okay, I can do this. And then he quit. And two weeks later, two weeks after his last day, his whole project got shut down. And wow. I am so glad that he quit on his terms instead of, oh, I'll just do one more year. And then the project gets shut down and he's he would constantly be waiting for, you know, ooh, should I get another job? Was I really ready to go? And as soon as he quit, he's like, oh my God, I should have done this years ago. So and Mindy, how is your, how is your uh, family's position advanced or declined since that departure date? I think it's either two or two and a half times. Our net worth has increased two or 200 or 250% since then. And the stock market's been on a tear. We sold a house and made a lot of money off of it tax-free because we lived in it for two years. So there's, he was always really nervous 
And once he cut the cord, after he came to the realization himself, once he cut the cord, he was like, should have done this years ago. So I'm just sharing that I think your numbers are awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think we do have other grand plans for our family. You know, I think travel, vacation, like those kinds of expenses are going to go up, but not not so much that I think it will offset offset what our future income is going to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that brings us back to like, you got to be really clear on that 4,000 or 5,200 number, because that is, if, if, if that number goes to 10,000 um, with that, that's 120. Now you're going to need 3 million in order to, to hit that number on a monthly basis. And a lot of people would reasonably want a $10,000 a month spending threshold for, for those types of things in that. So not an, like, like your number is reasonable. 6,000, 8,000 is reasonable, 10,000 is reasonable, but whatever that is for you, that that's that's a key assumption um, for, for yeah. a lot of this stuff. Now, the good news is that if you work part-time, you know, or something like that, you could easily snowball this, like, like that, that's, that brings me back to the earlier point that I was trying to discuss um, when we were first getting started is you say, I'm not interested in lifetime wealth and that kind of stuff. But I think that if if you set this up correctly with this, there's almost if you do part time work building decks for your rental properties, again you're going to increase your net worth by another incremental fifty to hundred k probably per year by doing that kind of work, um, or that's going to be, be be savings that's not baked into your model um, completely here, and your other assets are going to continue to grow, and so. But what you, what you, I think that's what you want. You want to be retired with this, with a safe margin of safety. And that margin of safety means that your, your purchasing power and wealth should, on average, you know, recessions and depressions excluded from this, increase over time, giving you even more and more options way beyond what you thought you needed. Probably most folks who leave their job are doing it way too late <laughs> um, yeah. because they, they could have done it with, with that margin. You can't, you can't live your life necessarily with, with that. that. That won't help you sleep at night, but but it's just a, a model to think about. Where we lucked out was early. We paid off our debt as quickly as possible. And then we maxed, we put a lot of money towards 401k and that has been able to start compounding. So you know, to be 36 and to have 400K between myself and my husband, of course, you know, rule of 72, even if it's 7% interest in the stock market, it's going to double three, three more times, I think, maybe, you know, uh, if, if it doubles every 10 years. And so if it's possible to maintain our lifestyle within the rentals that we already have and leave the 401K, then to your point, there's legacy planning, there's other things for our kids you know, that will hopefully be intact later on for our family. And, and to Mindy's point, like, you know, you know, even if that's not enough for whatever reason with it, it's going to be so close that even some part-time income is going to cover it with it. So that's, that's, I think where the biggest, I think the biggest takeaway is I don't think you need the 401k in order to achieve the goal. And Good new, all good news all around. You might have the option to do it sooner uh, than four <laughs> years, including inclusive of not touching that if some of those those assumptions play out. Um, I, that would be amazing. And I think lifestyle wise, like we're so ingrained in how we live our life now, you know, that I don't see I don't see a lot of lifestyle change happening. I think you know a travel will go up a little bit, but then I've thought about you know we can still offset that with doing some side hustles or maybe we flip a house for cash once you know once every couple years or you know, we know we have the skills to do this. I think we will be able to be creative and come up with it if we if we need to for a little bit here or there to go do some some grand adventures. 
Um, you know, spending wise, I really don't see us changing. So most, almost all of the, I would say clothes or shopping type things we acquire through rental property or through, uh, sorry, garage sales. So almost every Saturday I go garage selling and that's kind of like my favorite hobby in life, honestly. Uh, so sometimes we'll bring the kids with us and, you know, we have those money talks with them now about, you know, do you want one toy at the store or do you want 10 toys at garage sales that you can pick out, you know? And so they enjoy doing that. Uh, and so we've been able to, to get most of our clothes and needs like that. Like I expect when the kids get older, you know, our kids are six, four and three. So as they get older, I'm sure that will probably change when, when needs change. But of course I've, you know, I've baked in extra money in the budget to, to, to cover that eventually. Um, but right now, you know, or even once our kids are gone, like I don't see our lifestyle changing beyond much of what it is today. I have a couple of points to add. So you want to travel. Let me introduce you to travel hacking and credit card, opening those up and getting all the bonus points. Um, right now, there's not a ton of super, super lucrative ones, but you can still find good travel hacking credit cards. We have one with Southwest because we only fly Southwest. We have one with um, Hyatt Hotels. I have something like, because we didn't travel at all last year, I have something like 30 free hotel nights and oh, they wow. don't, they don't expire. And I'm staying, Hyatt's are nice hotels. I mean, for me, they're nice, not for Ramit, but that's okay. I'm not going on any vacations with Ramit. Um, he was on a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about, oh, I like to stay in $500 hotels. I'm like, that's not me at all. <laughs> I mean, it's nice when Bigger Pockets is paying the bill, but uh, it's never me that's paying that bill. But anyway, I digress. So find a hotel chain that you like, get their credit card and start. That's your that's your credit card. That's for all the business expenses. That's for all the uh, personal expenses. Rack them all up unless you're, you have an LLC and you need to keep them perfectly separate. But then have a business credit card and a personal credit card. Find the airline that you like to go to that you like to fly or that goes to the destinations you want to go to, get their credit card. And I mean, if with 23 houses, you have a fair amount of expenses that you can put on credit cards and generate income. You're going to spend the money anyway. You might as well get reward points for it. Um, and the second point of point I would like to make is if you're going to buy a primary residence, I would recommend buying a it with a mortgage because rates are so low right now. All the money that would be sitting in your property could be used to invest in other properties or to invest in the stock market. And that's what I do. I got a mortgage on my house. Even though I paid for cash, I refinanced as soon as I could, pulled all the money that I could out, and then put it into the stock market. And if you are going to go this route, and again, a research opportunity, you have to be able to sleep at night. And if you can't sleep with a mortgage on your house, then buy it for cash. But if you're going to get a mortgage... Get it before you give notice at your job. That's an exceptional point. And we have thought about that. And part of the reason why we thought about doing it is because really that's the only time that we're going to be able to keep, I, not to say my credit's going to be tarnished. I don't really know what happens once I don't have a W-2 job anymore, but for references, for everything else, you know, we can lock it in while I'm working and then, you know, then maximize cash flow that way too, where maybe our cash nest egg, which we keep about 75,000 in cash reserves you know, maybe that number grows for a couple of years just to make sure everything's going to be okay with the option of you can either pay down your primary mortgage later if you want to, or just continue to let it ride on your 30-year fixed loan. My, my, you have to talk to a lender about this, but I'd bet that um, 
we always give the advice, get the mortgage before you leave the job with that kind of stuff. I, I actually doubt that will actually uh, fully apply in your situation because you have enough rental income um, that I think you'll be able to qualify for oh, that, that mortgage without that. You should talk to a lender before that happens. But I, I based on what we had the discussion today, I don't think you're going to pull out a, a $600,000 mortgage on the, on the property with, uh, on a property with this. It's probably going to be much lower. And so that may not be an actual concern for you guys since you have so much landlording history. Yeah, we're hoping to buy our primary house for around 300 k Again, moving from East Coast back to Midwest small town, uh, and, and be able to do it that way. So that's a really good point about talking to the lenders. I do think the only thing that could hurt us is I think they re- request copies of your tax returns. And if you look at our rental properties on its own, you know, because of depreciation, because of other expenses that come off right now, they're, you know, we do make money, but not very much. It's almost break even. That's every landlord yeah. though. And they'll, 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 they'll do it based on a percentage of the total gross rents that are okay. that you, you either have and if you're buying a new property they'll do it they'll actually allow you to include a percentage of the gross rents of the new property even if it's vacant um the estimated gross rents so i think you're going to find your purchasing powers significantly it's going to i bet you it's probably uh, the equivalent of 120 or $1000 or something like that um if your gross rents are 14000 um uh, like ten thousand a month is what what you might you may find you get credit for. Talk to a lender though before you um, bank on that, of course. Excellent advice. Yeah, that is really good advice, Scott. I didn't think about that, and um, I was just remembering the time that we tried to get a loan while we were self employed, and it was a horrible disaster. Um, and, and that was with income. I mean, my husband worked for the government as a contractor and then, but as a W-2 employee for a contracting company. And then they said, hey, we'll pay you a lot more if you go contract with us. So he did, same job he'd been at for 12 years, same, actually increase in income. I wasn't working at the time. And the lender was like, oh, we're not giving you a loan. You're self-employed. He's like, what do you mean I'm self-employed? I work for the same company for 10 years. So uh, just something to think about. But yeah, definitely talk to a lender. I'm trying to text my lender right now. Hey, can we do this? But he's not getting back to me. (laughs) He should just have his phone in front of him so I could ask him questions while we're recording. Yes, I Ah. think there's a lot to think about, about what we end up doing with our primary and how that's going to work out. We've also, this sounds crazy, but we've thought about buying it now, potentially, and putting a renter in there for two years. uh, And, you know, just start that way. We don't have to build up our cash reserves. If we wanted to, we could you know, apply it to our, our mortgage or, or not and, and let someone else start paying down that mortgage of even our primary. Uh, generally, so we've bought a few houses together, like for primaries through the years. And we have this tendency to buy the worst house on a nice street and then fix it up ourselves. We've done this like over and over and over again. So part of it is if we're going to go buy a primary, maybe we just don't fix it up right now. Right. And we let someone else live there for a few years, make sure it's a nice home, you know, in a nice area, whatnot. Uh, and then, that way it's already secured. The only thing that we throw around in our head is you're not really maximizing interest rate potentially because we'd have to buy it as an investment property versus a primary residence. And so there's a couple points of interest potentially at stake there between between doing that. So we've, we've gone back and forth about thinking that through as well. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? My thought is it's going to be a lot easier to get a loan right now than when you no longer have a job. Interest rates are so so ridiculously low. I'm seeing people getting three, three and a half, four percent interest 
on investor loans. Yeah. So, so when we consolidated quite a few of the rental, quite a few of the rental debt uh, in March of 2021, we locked in 389, which is crazy for investment. That's investment properties. Yeah. So that's a good point. Yeah. So maybe and it's portfolio. Loan. Maybe a way to think about it then is yeah, it might be a couple points higher, but by the time we buy in a couple years, it'll probably be a couple points higher anyway. Potentially, in theory. Yeah, I, I also, I also just want to observe that, like your your situation is, you're, you're if you were if you're saying how do I boil into the best number in four years, we'd be going a totally different route, right? We, it would be let's pull out a bunch of this cash and put it into more rental properties with that kind of with that kind of stuff. So a few point, a few basis points in interest rate are not going to make make or break any part of this decision on this. And I think that if, if you're just trying to de-risk the, the event in two, in two to four years, uh, we've got it down to potentially two, uh, which I'm, I'm very happy about. Um, you know, that, that's a, uh, um, th- then, you, you know, that makes perfect, it makes perfect sense to do something like that, even though it's not going to generate a ton of return. It's just de-risking that future event, you know? Okay. Kate, this is a super fun episode, but we're not done yet. You have answers to our famous four questions. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, we're going to just jump right into it. What is your favorite finance book? Your Money or Your Life. Great book. Great book. We had Vicki Robin on the show a few months ago. I think it was episode 99. She was fabulous. Yeah, it was amazing. Just the idea about thinking about your freedom, thinking about how how to think about your freedom and what work really is. It really changed our lives. And we had when we had her on the show, we discovered that she is a fellow house hacker. Uh, so, <laughs> um, what was your biggest money mistake, Kate? So I've had two. Uh, one was I bought a Mercedes convertible to then find out a month later I was pregnant and we couldn't fit three people in a two seat car, and so oh. we had. To, and then the second one was we uh, just lifestyle inflation. At one time, we had a forty five hundred square foot house. And life was good. And then when we came across your money or life, when we came across bigger pockets and a lot of other great forums and communities, we realized that wasn't the life for us and then had to downsize all of it happily. Vicky's episode was number 98, not 99. Nin- number 99 was Scott Trench live at uh, oh. Camp Fi. Okay. Anyway, uh, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Ask a lot of questions and find mentors. So I actually ended up becoming friends with some of the mortgage brokers out there to learn how to how to get loans, how to price loans. And the more questions you ask, as long as you're friendly about it, a lot of people in this community are more than happy to answer your questions. That's awesome advice. That's awesome. All right. What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Okay. So I'm not a good party joke person, but I do have a little comic strip that I absolutely love to retell at parties. And so you have to envision a little girl in her bed and her dad's reading her a story at night. And the little girl says to the dad, can you skip to the part where the princess creates multiple streams of income, builds wealth and invests it all in in cash flowing assets? So instead of the princess story, it's this little girl where she's dreaming of, you know, cash flowing assets. And I love, love that (laughs) mental picture. And you sent that to us. So we are going. I love it. That sounds like a bigger pocketbook. (laughs) You sent that picture to us and we will include it in our show notes, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash money show 246. Kate, thank you so much for your time today. This was wonderful. When you quit in two years, not four, 
or whenever it works out for your timeline, please reach out so we can give an update. I would love to come back. Thank you so much. This has changed our life. I'm, I'm so appreciative of your time. Ooh, yay. I'm so excited. Yeah, thank you okay, so much. Well, this is a wonderful episode and really fun. So we appreciate you coming on, Kate. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, that was Kate and her fantastic story and her amazing projections and your really great ideas for ways to look at things differently. Scott, what did you think of her story? I, I thought it was really fun. You know, this this um, th- this is a the type of situation where I think the strategy of how we handle our personal finances can really come into play. And like everybody's different, right? If, if we were trying to build, maximize returns on the current portfolio, I have a completely different approach. We'd be leveraging that portfolio to a large degree, buying a lot more property, um, probably, you know, figuring out other, you know, thinking about some sort of entrepreneurial venture with that, that can tie into that business. But like, no, Kate's goal is I want to be done in four years. I want it to be simple. I want to have a paid off portfolio for the, like, or or very close to it. And I want to, I want to just kind of realize the vision of, your money or your life, uh, you know, with, with, with this, which is, you know, obviously her book recommendation with that. And I think one that everyone should read and it's perfect. It's such a winning formula. The paradox though, that I want everyone to be careful of is that by achieving that goal, she's going to have a rock solid financial position. That's probably going to be able to sustain her for the rest of her life. And she's going to get wealthy anyways, on top of that. And so failing to at least plan or acknowledge around that being a possibility, which I think is where that discussion from the 401k happened, you know, or, or, or maybe, maybe grounded in is I think a mistake that we, that you should, that you can, that you can think through, you know, just because I don't care to win big downstream doesn't mean that I shouldn't acknowledge the, the, the high probability like likelihood that reasonable stewardship of, of my 401k assets or other, ta- or, or, or other investments, once I'm financially free, will probably just balloon throughout my life if I'm operating with a margin of safety with it. So I think it's a good problem. Um, I probably used way too much jargon in there and lost myself in thought, but that's, uh, <laughs> that, that, that would, that, that's my highest level uh, takeaway from, from today's show. Well, I have nothing as close to that, uh, but listeners of this show know that you are going to lose yourself in jargon and I'm going to come in with a, a really happy, I agree, um, but I do agree. She's She's got a great story. She's definitely going, you don't get to her position of a $2 million plus net worth at age 36 and making $180,000 a year and, you know, without having some sort of momentum behind you, I really don't think that she's going to be able to quit her job and just not make any more money. I think another rental property is going to pop up in her hometown and she's going to jump on it because it's going to be a great deal. And I think that's just going to continue to happen for her. So at 20, at 36, she has 23 properties. By 40, she's probably going to have 25 maybe 30. Maybe somebody comes to her and says, hey, I've got a whole portfolio of properties that I want to sell to somebody who's going to take care of my tenants the way that you take care of your tenants. And, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities. And what's the, what's the, the phrase, the rich get richer. And she's, I just see her net worth continuing to balloon. And like you said, if you don't plan for those tax uh, those tax implications down the road, she could have, and it's, I mean, it's a good problem to have. Oh, now I have to pay a lot in taxes. Well, you have to pay a lot in taxes when you make a lot of money. It's it's like you're paying your fair share. So when you have to pay a lot in taxes, that's another good problem to have. But if there are ways around it, 
that's when benefiting from, you could benefit from a, a conversation with a tax pro who can help you with the ins and outs that you and I just don't really know. But again, I think this was a great story and I had a lot of fun with her. Yeah, she, she's crushing it. I, I, I hope we hear from her in uh, um, a year or two and see, see how things are going. Um, I, 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 wonder, I wonder how things will turn out. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, maybe even in a year. Ooh, that would be great. Okay, I would like to ask our listeners a question. We love doing these finance reviews and we love it when you apply to be on the show. We are looking for anybody to apply who has an interesting money story. If you are, we've had a lot of recent uh, recent guests who are very successful in their finances, but that doesn't mean that if you have debt, you can't apply. We would love to talk to anybody about their finances and you can apply to be a guest on the show at www.biggerpockets.com slash finance review. Thank you. I, I want to echo that real quick as I know Mindy was about to say goodbye to everyone, but I just want to be like super clear about that. There's a lot of folks that come on there like, and, and we'll hear from them and they're like, no, I want to, I want to fix my financial position before coming on, on, on the, on the money podcast. Well, if you're struggling in debt and don't know exactly what to do next, this is the perfect place, the perfect time. If you know what you need to do, um, and, 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 and you're going on it, you don't need that, you know, that's one thing. But if you're wondering, like, we want to hear every money story and, and, and we, I think we don't get enough applicants with, from folks that are, are struggling and need to, um, build the basic, the, the, the basic building blocks of the financial position. So you're going to help a lot of people um, as well. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. We hear, I hear from people every single episode. <gasps> this, I learned so much from this episode. Every single episode I hear from people. So I would love to hear your feedback, but also I would love to hear your story. Please apply. Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 246 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying, see you later, alligator. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.